This is Dave Chang. And Chris Ying. We are the hosts of Recipe Club. You may have listened to it before, but we are now back on the air, new and improved, with the same hosts that lose every week. I still don't know what the rules are because they've changed as well. Chris, can you give a quick rundown? Every week, we debate the best way to cook the things you want to eat. We take a user, listener, submitted recipe, and we all cook it with our friends, Priya Krishna, Rachel Kong, Brian Ford, and John DeBerry. And then we talk about what went right and what went wrong. No, I actually really don't want to do this podcast. (laughs) And they are hardly our friends. They are enemies. They are enemies. It's Dave's civil disobedience. If you want to see Dave Chang in an act of civil disobedience, tune into Recipe Club where he will not follow the recipe. I'm contractually obligated (laughs) to make this podcast. (laughs) But I'm here to have a good time. So listen to Recipe Club every week on the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is about a historic low for America. Last year, the U.S. population grew at its slowest pace in history. Yes, in 245 years of being a country, America has never grown slower than it is right now. Now, I want to do two things in this episode, I want to explain to you why population growth is declining, both in the US and around the world. And I want to persuade you that population growth is important. Really, really, really important. So a country grows or shrinks in three ways, and only three ways. Number one, births. Number two, deaths. Number three, net immigration. That is the difference between the number of people who leave a country and who come into the country. And all those numbers for the US are headed in the wrong direction. Deaths are rising for sadly obvious reasons. The pandemic has killed more than one million Americans in the past two years. But even if the pandemic had never happened, U.S. population growth would still be crashing to an all-time low. And that is largely because immigration to this country has plummeted in the last six years. Since 2016, 
the year before Trump became president, immigration has fallen from just over 1 million to less than 250,000. That means each year we're missing more than 700,000 immigrants. It's the equal of the population of, say, Washington, D.C., not moving into the country year after year. Finally, there are births. U.S. fertility rate has also declined to an all-time low. In 1960, the average American woman had almost four children. Today, fertility has declined to less than two, about 1.7 to be exact. Now, you could say, and I would agree, that it's fine for Americans to have smaller families. But surveys show that Americans aren't just having the family size that they want, they're having fewer kids than they want because so many essentials, housing, childcare, health insurance are rising faster than wages. So it's not just that ideal family size is declining, it's that actual family size is declining even faster. So what's going on here? Why is every engine of population growth sputtering at the same time? And more importantly, why should we care? Why does population growth even matter? To answer these questions, today's guest is Matthew Iglesias. Matt is the author of the Slow Boring Newsletter and the author of the book, One Billion Americans. In this episode, we talk about why immigration and birth rates are collapsing, why politicians won't prioritize family policy and immigration in DC, why population growth is good for both Americans living today and Americans living in the future, and whether critics have a case when they say a livable planet can't take another billion people. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Matt Iglesias, welcome to the podcast. Really glad to be here. So let's start with the news. The Census Bureau's latest population report found that in 2021, we had the slowest rate of population growth in American history. Deaths increased for sadly obvious reasons, the pandemic. Births also declined, and so did immigration. So Matt, I'd love you to walk us through exactly why you think this happened. Let's start with births. Why do you think birth rates are going down? Sure. Uh, you know, so birth rates have been in a state of decline for, for quite a long time now. Um, you know, there's some stuff unique to the pandemic that probably impacted this. I think uh, closures of schools was a big burden on parents. So these kind of things were highlighted, were, were front of mind. But we're into 20 to 30 years of, of declining birth rates. And one thing that's interesting that really changed my thinking is that um, we haven't seen a decline in the number of people, of children that people say they would ideally like to have. Now, back in the 70s, that number did go down. But since the early 80s, uh, sort of ideal fertility, as expressed by American women, has stayed pretty steady. Uh, but realized fertility has gone down further and further. Uh, when you ask people in surveys, you know, why is that? They cite a lot of financial type objections. They say, you know, either I was too old by the time I started having children, it took me a long time to achieve financial stability, or the number one answer is that childcare is too expensive. Uh, now, in some objective sense, obviously people have larger families in incredibly poor countries. People had larger families in the 18th century. Uh, so it's not like 
objectively true that it's like not possible to afford children. Uh, but the relative cost of childcare has gone up a lot while the relative cost of other things has fallen. Uh, so I think people perceive it as much more burdensome to have uh, to have, you know, two or three children than, than they used to in the past. Yeah, one way that I see it globally is that as education increases, as women's education increases, as economies modernize, you tend to see birth rates come down. That is the global trend. And that would explain why countries across the world, in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, are all seeing birth rates sort of trend toward 2.5. But at the same time, as you pointed out, there is a growing gap in the U.S. between the number of children parents say, or women say they want to have, which tends to be between, say, two and three, and the number of children they actually have, which is closer to two or even under two. And one reason for that is that it's just so damn expensive to have kids in the U.S. The OECD compares the average childcare cost for parents in the richest countries in the world, like childcare allowances, subsidized childcare, things like that. And for single parents, according to the OECD, the U.S. is the third most expensive country in the world to raise a kid after only the Slavic Republic and Cyprus. So it is really hard to have and raise children in America. And as you pointed out very correctly, it has gotten harder during the pandemic. Do you have a big picture theory about why the U.S. seems relatively unique among advanced, rich, developed countries in its lack of financial support for families? Sure. I mean, you know, the U.S. welfare state is smaller uh, on a whole number of dimensions. I think that's sort of well known. You know, exactly why that is, people can disagree about. But child care is particularly difficult because it implicates all kinds of culture war controversies that people have. Because, you know, what is an ideal child rearing arrangement is something that people really disagree about. And if you were to support, uh, expand the welfare state to take care of little kids, you would have to sort of make some choices, right? Are we trying to get kids into government-run daycare centers to maximize labor force participation uh, among mothers? I mean, parents, but realistically mothers. Um, are we saying, like, do we want to subsidize stay-at-home parents? There was an effort to do that with the expanded child tax credit that the Biden administration did early. Uh, but it turned out, you know, Conservatives didn't like that because it cost a lot of money. It gave cash to people who weren't working. And progressives enjoyed the fact that it was going to cut poverty, but they themselves didn't want to say, well, okay, no, this is our ideal. We want to just give cash assistance to parents. They tried to also create a big childcare program, an expansion of pre-K. And so inside even the Democratic caucus, there was a lack of decision, right? What do we actually want to do here? Uh, because it's, you know, it's very personal, but also a social choice question. Back in the 70s, the Nixon administration toyed with creating a national child care program. Uh, Pat Buchanan and other sort of religious right people convinced him that that would be a mistake, that really their base uh, did not want to see this topic addressed, at least not in that kind of way, and that, you know, he would be better off breaking with big business to stand up for sort of traditional family values and, and mom stays at home. That worked for Nixon politically, but it hasn't actually, like, given us a, a leave-it-to-beaver society. Um, the, the, you know, so there's this kind of mismatch between economic reality, people's desires, and then our own indecision about what do we even want to say about this. I want to move on to immigration. Uh, if you would have asked me a, like two years ago, I would have thought that the collapse of immigration 
was in large part the result of Trump administration policies, and that if he replaced Trump, immigration would perk back up. But instead, immigration was lower in the first year of the Biden administration than any year under Trump. So why have we seen this sort of six-year decline in immigration to the United States? And why in particular did it continue to fall after Trump was voted out of office? One thing that happened under Trump is we had a kind of collapse of the visa issuance system. You know, he was not very eager to see this uh, kind of thing happening. The pandemic- And just say a little bit about what the visa issuance system sure. means. Sure, so, you is, know, yeah. to, to actually get a visa to, to come to the United States, you, you need to qualify for one. But there's also like a lot of bureaucratic hoops that you need to jump through, right? You need to go to a consulate, you need to apply, you need to generate a lot of paperwork for an employment type visa. People back in the US need to do their own paperwork. It's, a, it's an intensive sort of process. Um, Trump was not very interested in maintaining that function of government during the pandemic, really let it kind of go to nothing. And the Biden administration has not been that, um, swift to sort of bring it back online, right, to get consulates abroad working in person so that they can do this work efficiently. Uh, at the same time, they have continued a lot of Trump-era policies at the border in terms of people trying to apply for asylum because, you know, early in Biden's administration, there was a huge increase in the number of people showing up. There was a perception in Central America that the new team was going to be much more welcoming. And that caused Biden to really pivot and, like, really try to say to people like, no, we do not want millions of people without visas showing up at the border, making asylum claims. And then politically, you know, there is unfortunately not a ton of enthusiasm for increasing levels of legal immigration. So it's it's been a, it was such an emotional centerpiece of Trump era politics, but it's not something that Democrats see as like a winning issue for them to champion. I see a connection between both topics here, declining birth rates and declining immigration. Because in both cases, there seems to be no political will to do something that is obviously good. Like, should we want families to be able to afford children? Yes. And what are we going to do about it? As little as possible. It's the same with immigration. As my friend Caleb Watney, who is the co-founder of a new think tank, Institute for Progress, as Caleb has said, Immigration is a geopolitical cheat code. Do Americans want the best scientists? Well, immigrants have been awarded more than one third of America's Nobel Prizes for medicine since 2000. Do we want the best companies? Well, immigrants account for more than 50% of America's billion dollar startups. Like high-skilled immigration is a trillion dollar check lying on the ground and Washington is just refusing to pick it up. So Matt, why is Washington refusing to pick up this trillion-dollar check lying on the ground. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people I know, I mean, you, me, Caleb, lots of people who are interested in science and growth and the economy are very sort of focused on this topic. Um, why is it challenging for highly skilled workers, for scientists, for the top talents in the world to come here? You know, the, the political system is very focused on the security situation at the southern border, the living conditions of millions of undocumented people who've been here oftentimes for decades, uh, the families of, of those kind of people. And that is where any political discussion eventually goes. And then it goes to die there. 
right? You start by saying, well, we're going to have a discussion in Congress about visas for scientists. And then somebody says, well, okay, we could give more visas for scientists, but then we need to take away family unification visas, you know, for um, the children of Cambodian refugees. And then somebody else says, no, I, I don't want to take away this category of visa. And, and then you have a discussion of like, well, could we increase the overall visa cap? Uh, but then you're into what's like known in Congress as comprehensive immigration reform. And so then you need to do something with the present undocumented population. You need to do something about the border. Nobody even knows what to do about the border, right? I mean, Trump got a lot of juice out of the wall, um, but now he gets a lot of juice out of the fact that like people continue to come, which there's some like logic brain where you're like, well, maybe then the wall didn't work, but that's not, you know, how it plays, right? It's like, we need more wall. We need two walls. We need seven walls. And there's just, there's more political heat around these kind of subjects than there is around something boring. Like, why is it so challenging to hire a Canadian computer programmer and like let her come move to Seattle rather than Vancouver? Like, isn't that sort of uncontroversial and like obviously better? Uh, but it's not what gets people fired up. So to summarize where we are, U.S. population growth has fallen, not only because deaths are going up, but also because births and immigration are going down. And I think one reason why birth rates and immigration are headed in the wrong direction is that we have failed, politically and culturally, to make the positive case for population growth. We failed to persuade people that population growth is good, that more Americans makes for a better America. So you are the author of the book, One Billion Americans, which calls for, among other things, one billion Americans. That is tripling America's population. So Matt, the floor is yours. Why in the biggest picture is more population growth good? Well, I think one really basic reason that we're, we're seeing play out right now with Russia, right, is that the United States has a lot of economic clout in the world, right? We can do sanctions that are quite damaging to foreign actors around the world. And the reason we can do that is we're not just rich on a per capita basis, uh, but we're big, right? Nobody cares what New Zealand wants to do in global economic policy. Now, as it happens, they are joining us in the Russian sanctions effort. And, you know, good for them. Uh, but the United States and the European Union are these really big actors on the world stage. And China is another really big actor. India is not quite as big an actor because it's so poor, but they're up there because they're so big, right? And so if you understand uh, the history of the past 200 years, um, the United States of America emerging as a great power on the world stage has a lot to do with us being a country that has a lot of people in it. Some of that is because we're a large country, you know, in, in terms of our dimensions, but Canada is bigger uh, in terms of land area than the United States. We are bigger in terms of geopolitical power because we have 10 times as many people living here. You know, and that's like our weather's better, uh, which is good for us. But, you know, we have recruited more people historically through immigration. We sort of settled the interior of the country. We have all these major cities. Um, and so there's aspects of that that help drive our economy forward, but it also drives our sort of national power forward. And we've seen this very concretely play out over the past few weeks. 
And yet I don't think people focus on it. They just sort of take it for granted that like, well, America's big and Canada's small and that's just some kind of weird coincidence. Uh, but it's not a coincidence at all. I mean, this is a policy choice that throughout the 19th century was very deliberately made to build this up into a major power. One point that, that you've made before is that it's really important not only that the United States retain bigness and even grow its bigness for you know the geopolitical tug of war between the U.S. and Russia, but also because China fits into this geopolitical struggle as well. China right now isn't just a little bit bigger than the United States. It's bigger than the U.S. plus Europe plus Japan plus South Korea plus Taiwan plus Canada plus Australia. It's bigger than all of us combined. And if we want to retain our geopolitical power in the world as China becomes potentially more authoritarian and even more aggressive internationally, you know, we don't know what it's going to do in the next few decades. We don't know if it's going to become more Putinish in terms of its uh, military strategy. We need to grow because our size matters in the geopolitical calculus. Um, it matters in terms of power, military might, but it also matters in terms of economic power. Like there are American companies, say Apple, that are willing to overlook China's horrific record on human rights in Xinjiang because they want access to their enormous domestic market. Like that is, in a way, an argument for having a big domestic market. You can get countries to do what you want. You can get companies to do what you want. If we want to retain these benefits, these geopolitical benefits and these economic benefits, we have to grow. Is that a fair summary of this sort of geopolitical argument for growth? Yeah, I mean, if you look right now, compare the U.S. to China economically, um, we're either a little bit bigger or maybe they're a little bit bigger, depending on whose statistics you believe and how you count it. But in terms of wealth, you know, China's about on a par with Bulgaria or Mexico, countries that are much poorer, much weaker than the United States. So You're talking about is, per capita wealth. Yeah, per right. capita. But so, like, why is China such a big deal, right? And, and it's because they have so many people. Right. So they cut a big uh, swath on the world stage. Companies care a lot about them. You see, you know, not just foreign companies, but American companies censor their movies to fit Chinese sensibilities because they need access to that market. And China is growing. Their economy continues to grow. Um, they've slowed down, but they're still growing faster than we are because it's easier to catch up when you're poor. We can sort of hope that China stumbles in terms of its domestic handling of things. But that's not a good plan, right? Whereas we can control our destiny in terms of what is our population here. Are we supporting our families at home? Are we taking advantage of the fact that people would like to move here to continue to be a country that has a, a market that people care about, that we can use that influence on the world stage, that also continues to be a place that innovators want to bring their new ideas here first. They want to think about, well, how does this work with America? Um, you know, that's a position of leadership that we've had for so long that you can sort of take it for granted. There's almost nobody alive today who has any experience of the United States not being the number one economy in the world. But that future could be coming really, really soon, unless we sort of take deliberate action to stay on top. What if someone says, what if a listener says, I get that bigger is better in the geopolitical calculus, but I don't really care that much about population decline. I don't really see how population decline, or at least a slowdown in population growth, is negative for America. It means that there's more space for me. It means that there's less traffic 
for me. I don't want more people. I don't want more change. I like America sort of the way it is, and I'd be fine with a kind of calm, static pond of American population growth today. What would you say are the economic and cultural downsides of population stagnation, which is the future that we are very clearly sliding into? I mean, one thing I think to look at is the actual parts of the United States where the population is declining. Um, And that's been the case in large sort of rural swaths of the country in the kind of, you know, high plains have had population decline for a long time. We've seen a lot of Rust Belt cities have had their population decline an incredible amount. And, you know, I don't want to knock St. Louis or Cleveland or Detroit or other cities that have suffered large-scale population decline. But I don't think you go to those cities. You particularly don't go to the neighborhoods that have depopulated and look around and say, oh, this is great. Uh, We have all this extra space. Because extra space in the form of like vacant buildings and warehouses that are falling apart because nobody wants to invest in their maintenance or, you know, traffic lights that it's not economical to keep operating them. So you turn them off. Like that's not what people mean by space. Really, right? Um, so, like, we can have national parks, right? We can have, you know, open vistas. We can have farms. People can have backyards. Um, and that's all fine. But, you know, parts of the country that are growing rapidly, if you go to Austin, Texas, or you go to the suburbs outside Austin, you'll say to yourself, like, this is thriving, right? Um, these are places where people are going. And if you go to a tiny town in the Texas panhandle whose population has fallen by half over the past 40 years, nobody looks at that and is like, this is great. Like, this is the future that I'm looking forward to. It's hard in concrete terms, actually, to stay in a place that's losing people. You know, you grow up there and you say to yourself, like, well, what am I going to do when I grow up? Like, what kind of services am I going to provide to a community that is shrinking? How am I going to find a partner and get married in a place that other young people are leaving? And so that kind of decline begets further decline. Whereas a place that's growing, you say, hey, like, I've got a great idea for a restaurant and there's going to be more customers there. You say, I know how to swing a hammer and people are going to want more houses. So I'm going to I'm going to go there and growth begets more growth. It's true that it begets traffic jams, uh, but there's worse things in the world than than traffic jams, honestly. And you go to places um, that have like, like Syracuse, New York, where they have this incredibly overbuilt roadway system. And I mean, it's true, it's nice that there's no traffic jams there, but the reason there's no traffic jams is that upstate New York has been in profound economic decline for a generation, and they'd be much better off with some traffic. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write, use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Workday. 
Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What do you say to the argument that there are countries that have had extremely slow population growth for the last few decades, rich countries that have had extremely slow population growth for the last few years or decades, and they basically seem fine? Like someone says, I- I've been to Tokyo, I've been in Japan, they've barely been growing for the last few decades. Japan seems pretty rich and happy. I've been to Western or Southern Europe, their population growth are absolutely pathetic, but you know, Rome is a beautiful place to live, and you know Madrid seems absolutely wonderful, and I really like Prague. What do you say to these people who say, you know, like I've been to the places that people like Matt Iglesias say we are turning into, and they seem kind of fine to me. Are is there something that they're missing, or something that they're not yet seeing because of the ripple effects of population slowdown and decline? I mean, you know, I think. Those Southern European countries in particular, um, they're very beautiful. They have a lot of great ancient architecture and things like that. And, and they really are great places to go. I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, as Americans, if we are honest, um, you know, are like the suburbs of uh, Columbus going to have the same charm? Uh, you know, the United States is a great place to live in its own way. But I think primarily in the sense that like we are a very economically dynamic society that is going to lose out if we don't have that. Japan, you know, is an interesting case because Japan has had very slow growth, a lot of population aging, and it is true that they are doing okay. Um, in geopolitical terms, though, they are also very much counting on the United States of America to sort of be their, you know, older brother as they face off against uh, much more malign kinds of powers in the region. And so you could say like, that's, that's fine for Japan. Uh, but who is going to be our United States of America? Like if it's not us and different countries have different histories. Um, Japan has this great post-World War II tradition of pacifism. And I think we sort of understand why that's become embedded in the Japanese political system and why people there are not really inclined toward nationalistic appeals and, and this kind of thing. The United States, I think most people here um, have a sort of different view of our role in the world and that we have been willing to be sort of the global leaders, the people who say it's true that Ukraine is like many thousands of miles away and across an ocean, but we are going to care about this. And if we want to keep playing that role, I think we need to sort of step up into it. And we also have an advantage culturally that Japan does not have, that Central European countries do not have, which is that we are a polyglot nation of immigrants and have been for a long time. We can point to a long history of people coming here from all over the world, of our culture changing and adapting. I mean, I like to say it's a true, like, only in America thing is that 
Like our big anti-immigrant demagogue president was married to an immigrant from Slovenia. <laughs> and and that's that's America, you know? Um, and it is something that not to say that other countries can't have immigrants, but if you're you're living in Finland and like the name of the country is, well, this is a land for Finns. It's a it's like a tougher call to say, well, should a lot of people who aren't Finnish come here? Like, what does that mean for us? Don't we exist uh, to like be our own kind of thing? But America has a, its own vision of like what is our national mission, and it's kind of grandiose, right? But like we are a bastion of freedom to all the world, and not a place for a particular ethnic group or a particular language. I want to add two more ingredients to this jambalaya of why population slowdown and population decline might be negative in ways that ordinary listeners might not immediately intuit. One is that uh, if you look at Japan and its GDP per capita, not its overall GDP, its per capita GDP over the last 25 years, it is flat. In 1994, Japan had a higher GDP per capita than it has today. Meanwhile, over that same time, GDP per capita in the US has more than doubled. I think that growth is really important in a polyglot, culturally diverse society because as the economy becomes seen as zero sum, as essentially everyone is just permanently the exact same amount of income per capita forever, people see that what other people get is what they don't get. They see the world as this zero-sum fight for scarce resources, and I think that's really bad for a culturally rich, culturally dynamic society because it turns groups against each other. They convince themselves even more that what group over A gets is what group B has taken away. It's just all makers and takers. So I, I, I fear for, for that in a world where America truly becomes uh, economically and demographically stagnant is that if you think the culture war is bad today, just wait until the perception of zero-sum politics becomes the reality of zero-sum politics. Maybe just react to that before I go on to my number two. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I do think that the demographic stagnation in Japan is related to this sort of per capita income stagnation that I'm just, I'm just old enough to remember the era in which Japan was the country of the future. And companies like Sony and Toshiba were at the leading edge of technology and innovation. And I think that it's hard. I mean, we just know in life that younger people, um, tend to drive innovation, that societies that have growth in terms of their breadth can also have growth in terms of ideas and things like that. And a lot of these other countries can still do well if they have good legacy institutions, but they sort of are along for the ride of kind of copying innovations that are elsewhere while the leading companies in the world are American or perhaps in the future Chinese. And it's, you know, something that we need to consider is the interrelationship between demographic dynamism and dynamism of ideas versus becoming a place that's dominated by elderly people who are very nostalgic, who are often not in the workforce, who sort of 
you know, brightest ideas were 40 years in the past. And then, you, yeah, you have a kind of a zero-sum nature. And particularly for the United States, if we say we're sort of like giving up on growth and we're giving up on leadership, that we would rather just kind of be quiet and pleasant. But then you look around and, you know, it's a country where people have different ethnic backgrounds, people have different religions. We can pit ourselves against each other if we want to. Our sort of political entrepreneurs are very good at that when that's what they want to be doing. Or we can say we have a lot in common, right? We have the sort of optimistic, can-do American spirit. We have this legacy of growth, a legacy of global leadership, and we are going to work together despite, you know, different religious backgrounds and and things like that. And, And I worry, I mean, America has always tried to go forward. And if we don't do that, I don't know. I don't know that we can slide down the hill quite as gracefully as Japan has. Hmm, interesting. The second thing that I want to point out is that I think there's some people who say, okay, you and Matt have put together an argument for why population growth might be good for future Americans or good for future American power. Uh, But why is it good for contemporary Americans? Isn't it just going to cash out in more traffic and more crowdedness? And I think it's important to say that today's demographic slump is a reflection of bad things. Like, Death rising is bad. Americans losing a million people to the pandemic is bad. The fact that parents are terrified or just scared of having as many kids as they want, that is bad. The fact that there are immigrants around the world who have a billion dollar idea in their head and we're like, eh, we'd rather not allow you into this country. Or that they're they're political refugees around the world who desperately need to escape terrible circumstances that want to move to the U.S. in order to have a beautiful, rich life. And we're saying, eh, we'd rather not. It's politically difficult. All these things are bad. So even if you are skeptical of the most grandiose positive vision that we're putting forth about the benefits of population growth, we should see with clear eyes that the reason for the demographic slump, all of it is bad stuff happening. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I I think that's especially true when you think about the kind of family side of this, right? I mean, it's like, what are we doing as people or as a society? It's very important that people be able to have uh, the kind of family life that they would like to have. And the fact that it's become more challenging to do that, not through malice, but it's the natural evolution of the economy, right? People get more years of education than they used to, which is good. Um, It's the way the economy works now, though. But human biology has not changed as rapidly as the nature of capitalism. And it maybe doesn't like magically allocate to people enough money to buy a house with multiple bedrooms and also to get childcare at an appropriate age to start a family. And so you know, we have people are becoming parents later in life, which is great. I mean, and it's wonderful. And I run around with my kid and my knees hurt. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's, um, it's sad if that ends up with people not being able to have the families that they want to have, right? That we should be masters of our own destiny and not just like, victims of economic trends that say, oh, you know, like the market doesn't really want people to have kids. It says that we should substitute uh, consumption of streaming video for consumption of childcare services. And you're like, yeah, I mean, that is what the market is telling us we want to do. But part of the reason we have a government is that we can sit down and say, no, like that's not right. This is a wealthy society. Um, We would like people to be able to raise children at like an age appropriate time and the quantity that they would like compatible
compatible with women being in the workforce and all these other things. And so we should make that possible. Like that is the road to a better tomorrow. And it's true. I mean, there are technical questions of how do you design these policies. There are cultural value questions, but it's worth taking the time to like actually figure something out and find a way to support families. Because I don't think anyone really thinks, oh, well, like we should just be totally indifferent to whether or not like this is a country full of happy children or not. I want to ask about the most common objection, the most popular objections to your argument for population growth. The one that I see the most is, what about climate change? Isn't it true that if Americans had fewer children and if the Chinese had fewer children and if all these countries had fewer children, that there would be less emissions growth and less of a catastrophic risk to the biosphere? What is your answer to the climate change objection to population growth? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is an idea that people invoke a little bit sporadically as an environmental policy, right? I mean, you know, if you drive drunk and you wreck your car and you like kill five people, that reduces emissions. But no one's like, oh, that's amazing. You know, you, you should go do that, right? Because what we're trying to do in environmental policy is like have a sustainable future, right? Like have a world in which people can get you know, low carbon energy sources and live good lives. We're not saying, I think reasonable people are not saying, no, what we need to do is like wreck human existence because then it wouldn't be as polluting. That's not, it's not an idea that anybody tries to apply in a consistent way because it doesn't really make sense. Um, They'll instead just sort of invoke it sporadically to be like, well, if there were fewer people, we wouldn't have these problems. And you could, you could phrase that as a kind of like, I've got mine thing, right? It's like, you know, I don't want to support any investments in clean energy. I don't want to change the built environment at all. So my solution to environmental problems is other people shouldn't have children and I'll just keep living my life the way I am. And that's like, that's really crappy. I think when you phrase it that way, Um, it is going to be challenging to change what kind of vehicles we use and change how our energy comes from and change our agricultural system. But for most of these topics, I do think there are available technological solutions to produce zero carbon energy. And we need to make uh, the political choices to, in fact, deploy them and, and unleash them. I mean, it's a, it's a great topic. And I know you've written about sort of abundance and, and these kind of things. And that's the... At least that's, to me, the version of the future that I want is one where we say, like, there is enough clean energy for everyone, not, well, we're going to stick with dirty energy, but then we don't want to use too much of it. So there aren't going to be any people around. And then we're going to, like, not ask too many questions about what's supposed to happen in Nigeria and Ethiopia and all these other countries that want to get rich and want to industrialize. Right. I think there's the acute argument and the big picture argument. The acute argument that you just made very well is that even if the U.S. just stops growing and Spain just stops growing and the United Kingdom just stops growing, you're still going to have billions of people from Africa, South America, Southeast Asia entering the middle class, which they have a moral right to do. And if we don't decarbonize the grid, then we're going to be walking into a future with way too many emissions, no matter what. It'll just be a world with global warming and a slightly smaller U.S. But the big picture argument, the moral argument to me, is that we should want to make the world better 
for more people. We shouldn't hope for a slightly less shitty world with significantly fewer people. That clearly seems to be the worst outcome here. The other argument that I want to throw at you, though, Matt, is that population growth is just annoying. Uh, Traffic sucks. Crowded bars suck. America's packed already. There isn't enough space. What is your argument to the there isn't enough space objection? Well, so I don't think people realize how empty the United States is. And, you know, I I like to go through these kind of basic facts. But if you tripled America's population, then we would have about the population density of France. We would be about half as dense as Germany. We'd be about a tenth as dense as the United Kingdom, uh, even lower than that compared to sort of the big Asian countries, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. Uh, Not only are those all nice countries, but like I've been to the UK and London is a really big city, but you can also like I took the train to Cardiff and I went past rolling hills and like the sheep around. And so even countries that are dramatically denser than the United States of America have plenty of sort of space in them as an aggregate type thing. And you can go down the list in terms of resources. Um, we have much more than three times the per capita fresh water of a country like Germany or Spain or Italy. And they're not, you know, running out of water there. Now, of course, there's a management challenge. Right. I mean, if you go from where America was 100 years ago to where it is today, we had to build a lot of infrastructure to facilitate the growth that we've had. In the future, we would need more infrastructure if we had more people. I just don't think it's it's almost like unbecoming a country that um, like went to the moon to say, like, well, we couldn't build an aqueduct for water. Uh, When we've built them in the past, like many of them, like there's all these people in Phoenix, which is maybe not the greatest place to have built a city, (laughs) but they're there and, you know, it's okay. Um, We can, we can find ways to make all of these sort of picayune type objections, you know, work. I think if we, if we take it seriously. Let's talk about one of your favorite policy suggestions for helping Americans have as many children as they want and one policy suggestion that you have on the immigration side. Um, What's your favorite, most plausible policy change on the fertility front? So, I mean, I think we got close to establishing just cash grants to all parents of young children, and now it's going to go away, unfortunately, in in 2022. But I really think that people who care about family life need to sort of put all their efforts into this. And it's not that childcare is bad or that preschool is bad, but that you can use money to purchase childcare services if you have it. And that the thing that is most likely to generate some kind of broad coalition that is values agnostic is the idea of, of cash support for parents. Um, you know, Mitt Romney has some interest in this idea. So there's little kind of inklings of bipartisan support. And, and that's really what I would work toward there. And your favorite policy suggestion for immigration? You know, on immigration, I think there's a lot of different ways that we could go, but I think especially really raising or uncapping the number of English-speaking college graduates or maybe just people with technical skills who could come should be a no-brainer. It's not the thing that kind of raises hackles or the biggest concerns about wages and scarcity and things like that. Right now, you know, Tom Cotton has this bill that's like, make immigration to the United States based on, he calls it merit, but it's, it's based on this educational attainment, technical skills. And I think it's like a perfectly reasonable idea, but then he wants to cut the amount of immigration in half. And that doesn't make sense. It's like, if you got better 
at selecting the most valuable immigrants, you should get more of them, right? I mean, it's like anything is like that. If you have something that's like more amazing, then you want more of it. And that's kind of the area that we should be pushing toward. But it means trying to disengage from some of the, the longstanding arguments about immigration that we've had. Money for families, more smart immigrants seems like a layup. For some reason, it isn't. I know you and I are working <laughs> daily to change the cultural climate to, to make people. the obvious more obvious, but um, we will continue to do so. Matt, thank you very much. Thank you. Plain English with Derek Thompson is produced by Devin Manzi. Thank you so much for listening to this show. If you like us, follow us on Spotify, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We will be back with our second episode this week on Friday. We will see you then. Mm-hmm.